Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Well, I am really thankful to be here tonight, be back to our series on the, our journey with Jesus, walking through the Gospels and walking through the life of Christ so we can gain greater insight we're doing this in five parts. In five parts, we can't go in depth as much as we would like in any of these particular sections, but my goal is really to give you a high-level overview of the life of Christ that would aid you in reading the Gospels for a lifetime. In fact, some of the points that we're going to make tonight are really key things. They're the kind of things, if you wrote them down and you had them on a piece of paper or something like that that you could keep in your Bible when you're reading through the Gospels, they would be a handy sort of post-it note of background information and ways to think about the Gospels that I think will really help you. So I want to get in the, into that tonight, but I do want, it's the, it's the Sunday before Veterans Day, I do want, and it's coincidence that I'm in uniform, I just didn't get time to go home and change first, but I'm just reminded of what a privilege it is to be part of a church that supports those of us that serve in the military. And I was reminded of that today. I was meeting with one of our deployers, someone who's going to deploy with me, and I was just checking in with her because she just recently had a child, and I was just saying, hey, are you ready for this deployment? How's, how are things at home? Do you have a good support structure set up? And so I was just checking through some of that. We had a really good conversation, and this is not someone who's a believer. And somewhere through that conversation, it just dawned on her. She says, oh, but chaplain, you're, you're going to go deploy too. What's your support structure like? And I said, I've got a really big family. <laughs> I've got a really big family. And I got to brag on Tri-City Baptist Church to an unbeliever. So I do have a wonderful family, people I'm related to. But I did get to brag on Tri-City Baptist Church because I know that if anything happened, and something's going to happen, you know, the washing machine's going to break, something breaks, when I go away on any military service for an extended period of time, that I'm not going to have to worry about someone being ready and willing to help. And we do view ourselves as missionaries into a mission field where there's a great need for the truth of God's Word. As you know, with the things that are going on in our world, this is not a time for people who know the truth to shirk away from the responsibilities of standing for what's true and for what's right and so I'm just thankful for a church like ours. I was re also reminded just a couple of random thoughts here that it is good for us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, do you know that when you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, you're, you're praying for the ready re and quick return of Jesus Christ? Because there will be peace in Jerusalem someday. And that peace, that ultimate peace will come when Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes back to his city his city, Jerusalem. And so I just thought that was fitting to say as we dive into this journey with Jesus, because ultimately it's going to be a journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. In his first advent, that journey to Jerusalem ends with his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. But Jesus is not done with Jerusalem, and he promised that he would return to that same city. And it is from the city of Jerusalem that Jesus will someday rule and reign, and we should look forward to that, shouldn't we? 
So let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem in the short term, but let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer this evening? Lord, I am thankful for Tri-City Baptist Church. I'm thankful for the consistent support that they give to those of us that put on our nation's uniform. Many of us do that in a reserve component, and we're gone, and it takes us away, and yet we know that we have the support of those that are here, and they support us in our mission of taking your truth to those men and women who put on our nation's uniform in a time when it's so important that we declare what is true. And Lord, I do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for the resolution of the conflict right now that is going on for the protection of the nation of Israel. But Lord, we want to pray for your, your son, Jesus Christ, to come back, the Prince of Peace, to come and return and to rule and reign from Jerusalem. We look forward to his second coming. And we are encouraged in your word to pray that he would come quickly. And so we do that. But Lord, until that day, I pray that we would be found faithful, that we would learn something of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your spirit, that we would emulate his life. We can't do it as like he did. We can't be perfect. But Lord, that we would produce a genuine Christ-likeness in our lives by the power of your spirit, that we would see his model and his example. And so I pray that you'd help us again with this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we left last time, Jesus was born, and we were talking about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. In particular, the fact that Jesus Christ was both God and man. This is a doctrine that is called the hypostatic union. And the doctrine of the hypostatic union is one of these places where there is mystery and things that we will not ultimately be able to understand. Uh, this is like the doctrine of the Trinity. There are aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity that if you think about them, they go beyond the boundaries of our mental capacity to understand. It's actually a good thing that there are these places within our theology where something is taught in Scripture, it's clear, for instance, the fact that God, that, excuse me, that Jesus is both God and man, that is clear and explicit, and we can make some descriptions that help us to understand how that might have worked, but ultimately we accept it by faith and we understand that there are things that are beyond our capacity. And that's a good reminder that our God is beyond us, that he is, his ways are beyond our comprehension. If we could comprehend everything about God, he wouldn't be God. He is above us and he is beyond us. The hypostatic union is one of those places where there is some mystery that we can't always resolve. How could God, how could Jesus be both God and man, 100% God, 100% man? Uh, we will never completely understand, but I want to give you three points here that I think will help us to at least begin to wrap our minds around how this might have worked. Here's the first principle. It's best for us to think of the hypostatic union not as the subtraction of deity, but rather as the addition of humanity. This is what's described for us in the book of Philippians, that Jesus took upon himself the form of a man. He took upon himself a genuine human nature. In taking upon himself a genuine human nature, Jesus did not cease to be God. He didn't empty himself of deity and fill himself with humanity. We have to be careful about this because Jesus is always, every time you're reading the stories— he is always 100% God. But he does add to himself humanity. And this is important. Jesus had to be both God and man so that he could make the atoning sacrifice for our, for our sins on the cross. He needed to identify with humanity 
so that he, through the obedience that Adam failed at, could bring many people to righteousness. This is what Paul teaches in the book of Romans. For as by the disobedience of one, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about where Jesus Christ identifies himself, God himself identifies himself with humanity, takes upon a human form. The writer of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to be identified with us as brothers and sisters. So Jesus added humanity. He did not subtract deity. Jesus willingly laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He didn't lose his divine attributes. He didn't use his divine attributes unless the Spirit directed him to do that, unless the Father directed him to do that. Jesus says this multiple times, especially in the book of John. He says, I can do nothing of myself. Now, here we're talking not necessarily about his moral attributes. Jesus was always perfectly loving. In his moral attributes, there was no sin. But if you thought about the big we call these the big O's, okay? The big O attributes. His omnipotence, okay? Was Jesus all-powerful? Well, the answer to this is yes, he was God. And yet Jesus himself says, I can do nothing of myself. So the best way for us to reconcile that is that, that Jesus did not independently use his divine attributes, especially the, if you think about the big O Okay, his omnipotence, he did that at the direction of the Father. He says, I do the works that the Father tells me to do. That's omnipotence. What about omniscience? Did Jesus know everything? Well, he was God, so he knew everything, right? Well, he surrendered the independent use of that divine attribute to the direction of God the Father. And I think by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there are a number of places where Jesus himself confesses that he doesn't know a piece of information. Is that because he wasn't God? No, he added humanity, and adding humanity, he willingly submitted to some limitations on his divine attributes. And the key phrase there is he did not independently use those divine attributes. He does that in submission to the will of the Father. So he doesn't lose them, but he doesn't use them unless directed by the Father. This is how we can make sense, for instance, of a, a, a verse like uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, where Jesus increased in wisdom. That means that he was learning things. Okay, he increased in stature. That means that he was getting more powerful. So if you're omnipotent, how can you get more powerful if you're already all-powerful? Well, in his humanity, he was growing stronger. That little baby, that little baby in the manger was not an all-powerful human that could do whatever it wanted at that time. He grew into that. And he increased, by the way, in favor with man. But it also says there in Luke 2.52, he increased in favor with God. That's a stunning statement for the, the hypostatic union, the fact that Jesus was 100% God. How could he increase in favor with God? Well, the Bible tells us that in his humanity, he grew in his relationship with the Father. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience, for instance. So he was growing. Now that's tough. This is where we start to get into those mysteries of how does all of that work. That's why this statement will help us. 
Jesus doesn't lose his divine attributes, but he doesn't use those attributes, especially those three big O's, like omnipresence. Jesus wasn't everywhere all the time. He says this to his disciples. He says, it's better for me to go so I can send the Holy Spirit, right? Because when Jesus was in the incarnation, he was in one geographic location at a time. Well, how does that work? Well, there's mystery there, okay? Now, I'm just using this as an illustration. I would never actually do this, okay? This is just illustration. When my kids were little, we would play hide and seek, and I have the ability to hide when they were little. It would be different today, okay? But back then, when they were little, I had the ability to hide in ways where my children could not find me. There was an attic access and Wi-Fi, <laughs> I could have taken my phone, gotten some work done, and the kids are downstairs looking, Daddy, where are you? Okay. I did not use the full extent, okay, of my ability to hide. Now, that's, that, this illustration breaks down, but at least it's used for us to think about someone willingly limiting their attributes, their abilities. And Jesus does this, and it's so important we get this. Because I'm combating something that I sometimes encounter when I uh, teach about the life of Christ and talk to people, which is what I like to call uh, Clark Kent Jesus. And I'm not saying that trying to be uh, sacrilegious at all, but when we read the stories of Jesus, because we have not accounted for his full humanity, when we read a story with Jesus in it, we say, well, of course he did that. He was God. It's like when you're watching Superman, when you're watching that show and you see Clark Kent, you know he's just a telephone booth away from being Superman. And so we have this idea that Jesus was just God in clever human disguise. But Jesus was not pretending to be a human. He was actually a human. And I'm just going to use one illustration of a place where it's useful for us to be thinking rightly about this, which is the temptation scene of Jesus in the wilderness. The Bible tells us that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was filled with the Spirit while he was in the wilderness being tempted. And so we should get a clue there that Jesus resisted the temptation in the wilderness, not because he was God, but because he was depending on the Holy Spirit. And then as you read that story, Jesus relies on the sword of the Spirit to fend off Satan's temptations. So if we read that story and we say, well, of course he didn't sin. He was just, he was God and God can't sin, which is true. But if you read that story, you'll miss the fact that Jesus resisted that temptation as a human being who was relying on the Spirit and the sword of the Spirit to resist temptation. Of course, it's true that he could not have sinned because God can't sin, but the point I'm making is it didn't get to that. Jesus resisted temptation relying on, and this is the key point, relying on the same resources that you and I have. It's an example for us, a genuine example for us, because he was genuinely human. And so this is just a useful way for us to think about this. And then my third point is this. It's also useful for us to remember that Jesus was an unfallen man. Jesus was living out the model human life. He was living his life freed from the diminishing effects of sin. 
I think it's hard for us to know. We, we won't know probably till that first day of heaven how much the fallen nature impacts us. I think it impacts our ability to think. <laughs> I think it impacts the ability of what we think. It impacts so much of our lives. But Jesus was operating with an unfallen, a sinless human nature. And that makes a great distinction for us. In fact, I like this, this quote here. The question is not whether Jesus was fully man. The Bible tells us clearly that he was, but whether we are. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is the model human being. All of us, because of sin, have lived a diminished version of what it means to be human. Being sinful is not essential to human nature. How do we know that? Because there were two humans who lived before sin entered this world. They were human, 100% human, and yet sin was not part of their nature until Genesis chapter 3. And I've got good news for you. You have lived a life. I have lived a life that's been impacted by the effects of sin. But I've got good news for all the redeemed people in this room. The vast majority of your human existence is going to be lived free from the influence of sin. I am going to live for a billion years with God, free from a sin nature. And then when that billion years is done, I've got another billion to go. So we don't define human nature by its worst representatives, you and I, okay? We need to define what it means to be human by looking at the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Is everyone with me so far? I think this is important stuff for us. So I like this question. And then here I want you to take down eight important insights from the life for the life of Christ. Okay, I'm going to go through these. I'll go through these pretty quickly. But I would like you to take these down and have these handy as we finish out our series this month. Have these handy. And, and these are the things I was talking about earlier that I think are handy to have with you as you're reading through the Gospels. And I'm adapting this from uh, Dr. Doug Bookman. First of all, we've talked about this. Jesus took upon himself genuine human nature. Okay, we've talked about that one, so I won't belabor that. Jesus's ministry had two distinct phases. And we see this very clearly, especially when we compare the four Gospels that we have. Early on, Jesus is involved in a phase of ministry called public presentation. Jesus is going to where the crowds are. This is primarily happening in the northern region of Galilee. The reason he's in the north in Galilee is that's because that's where the people were. The, the northern region, Galilee, supported a much larger population than Judea and the regions around Jerusalem. And so he's up there, he's performing miracles. There are lots of people around him. He's performing lots of miracles. This is where you have the feeding of the 5,000, which is really the feeding of probably the 15,000 or the 20,000, if you counted the women and children that are there. Very public displays of his power, miracles that confirmed his message. And then there's a transition where he starts to focus more deliberately on training his 12 disciples. And so that's the second phase. And then you have all the events that happen in Jerusalem. And so that'll help you as you're reading through the Gospels to see there are times when he's having much more private conversations and doing things on a smaller scale. 
Number three, Jesus made two explicit claims about himself. He claimed first to be the Jewish Messiah, and secondly, he claimed to be God. And he did this in a way that was plain to the Jewish people. He was making these claims primarily to the Israelites. And so he was doing it in a way that would have made perfect sense to them. But these are clear claims when we understand the history and the background. Jesus was claiming to be both the Jewish Messiah and he claimed to be God. And then he did powerful miracles. And these powerful miracles demonstrated that what he was declaring was true. If, if you can remember this about miracles, this is true about all, really, all miracles in the Bible in the Old Testament, and then during the life of Jesus, and even during the times of the apostles. Miracles were done not to put on a spectacular show. Jesus didn't even do miracles primarily because there were sick people or people that needed to be healed. The primary reason that Jesus and the other prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament did miracles was those miracles confirmed the messenger and the message. And this is what the miracles are doing in the life of Jesus. When Jesus showed up somewhere, he would heal people of disease. What did that indicate about who he was? It indicated that he was the one who could reverse the curse. The disease that's in this world because of sin. And he was claiming to be that person. And then he would do a miracle that demonstrated that. We're going to see a little bit of that tonight. But that's an important point. The purpose of Jesus' miracles was to validate his claims that he was both Messiah and that he was God. Number five, the rejection of Jesus was a matter of rebellion, not confusion or lack of information. This is important. You see this. I think John really paints this portrait for us very, very clearly. I think one of the highlights of that is in John chapter 9. Do you like the story in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind? And as Jesus is walking into the city with his disciples, his disciples reveal some really bad theology. They say, hey, Jesus, was this, is this man the sinner or was it his parents who sinned? We know sin happened because this man is blind. And Jesus says, actually, he was born blind for this moment so that God would receive glory. And then he heals that man. And yet when that story ends, who's blind? The Pharisees are blind. The blind man sees the seeing men are blind. And it was a willful blindness. Please understand, all rejection of God is ultimately rebellion against God. The person who says, God, show yourself to me. All they have to do is walk outside and look up. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's not about lack of information. It's about a lack of submission to the information that was in front of them. Number six, the teaching of his death was misunderstood, especially by his disciples. We're going to feature this prominently next week. And so in our session called Adventures in Missing the Point, the Life and Times of the Disciples. Okay, so we're going to come back to this one in particular. All right, so I'm going to leave that one for now. Jesus maintained popularity with, quote-unquote, the crowd until the last week of his life. And we're going to see how that plays in when we get to our last session where we look at how Jesus took the last steps towards the cross. 
the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders turn on him pretty quickly, but the crowd continued to be fascinated with him and continued to be hopeful that he was going to be a political deliverer who would kick out the Roman overlords and the taxation system and set up a new Jewish kingdom. Lastly, Jesus carefully orchestrated the events that led to his death. Now, let me be clear about that. That does not mean that the people that put him on the cross were not culpable. But this is important because I want us to understand that Jesus was not the passive victim of circumstances, but rather a willing sacrifice for us to go to the cross. And we're going to lay that out in the last session. But I want us to keep these eight points. We'll reference these a couple of times tonight and then as we move forward in the last couple sessions that we have. All right. Eight important insights into the life of Christ. Let's go to Mark chapter one. We're going to be in Mark chapter one and Mark chapter two. And we're just going to look at one day. This was a day that occurred in that time of public presentation. Okay. So this is during that time of public presentation. Jesus is up in Galilee And we're just going to take a look at one busy day in the life of Jesus that illustrates some of the points that we've made. And I think it's included here in Mark. It's also included for us in the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's included to sort of give us a snapshot into what it was like to have walked with Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry. And so we see this starting in verse 35. I'm sorry, we're going to back up. I'm sorry. Let's go to verse 21. Verse 21. A busy day in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 and verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. So what day of the week is this that these things are happening? What day of the week? This is happening on Saturday. This is Shabbat. This is the Sabbath. And Jesus, as was his custom, went into the synagogue and he was teaching. And we already know from comparative passages that people have heard about Jesus. He's been doing lots of miracles. And so there was a lot of interest in Jesus. And so I think the synagogue was full that day, maybe a little more full than it normally was. And it says in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were famous for quoting Rabbi so-and-so, who said such-and-such in year so-and-so. But Jesus taught them directly as one having his own authority, and people were hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. And in the midst of all of that, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He has this confrontation with this demon who is possessing this man. And and Jesus did this many times throughout his ministry. There was absolutely a battle, a spiritual battle going on in Israel at this time between the forces of Satan and his minions and Jesus Christ. who They were trying to oppose him at every turn. But routinely, Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority over the spiritual realm. And he does this here as he orders the demons, this demon. 
And I just want you to skip down to verse 27. After Jesus cleanses this man of the unclean spirit, they were all amazed, so that they questioned among them, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. Well, why is Jesus doing these spectacular miracles? So that everyone will know that He is who He claims to be. What is this? They recognize clearly that He has this authority. Well, then who is this man? You need to listen to Him and heed what He says. But you see in verse 28, 28, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. Everyone wants to be near Jesus. They want to see Jesus and the spectacular miracles. He's done in the synagogue, same day, verse 29, and as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's, wife, uh, Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Now, I want you to keep your finger right here in Mark 1. We're going to come back there, but I want you to go to the parallel passage that is found in Luke chapter 4. I just want to point something out to you in this particular passage. If you turn to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, tells the story of Jesus on another Sabbath day in his hometown of Nazareth. You're familiar, I think, with this story. Jesus goes to his hometown, opens up the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He turns in the scroll to the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. By the way, I just want you to note there, who is enabling Jesus to do the things that he's going to do? We're told right there that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and enables him to do these things. To preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, are you following along? What's the next word? To proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, Next line, to set at, can you say that with me? To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus says here, the Spirit is going to come upon me to do all of these things. And he highlights there twice to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to set people free. Now, I want you to skip over in the same chapter to the same scene we just read from Mark chapter 1. Okay, right here in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, he arose from the synagogue, entered Simon's house. Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her, so parallel to what we just saw in Mark chapter 1. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it says there the next line that the fever left her. The fever left her. If you look at that Greek word that's translated here, left, it literally says this in Greek, the fever released her. 
She was in the grips of the fever. And when Jesus rebuked the fever, you can see already the, the poetic device or the literary device of personification because he's rebuking a fever. He rebukes the fever and this literary device of personification continues in the mouth here of the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it says this, that the fever literally released her. You see, the picture is of someone in the grips of a disease. But at the command of Jesus, that person who is in the grips of that disease is set at liberty. And the Greek word that's used there in verse 39, the fever left her or the fever literally released her, is the same Greek word that's over in the synagogue scene where Jesus says, I have come to reclaim release or liberty to the captives. In other words, here's what I'm, why am I spending the time to point that out? And you can go back to Mark 1 now. Why am I spending the time to point that out? Because here's what I want you to see so clearly. Jesus declared that I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then the author goes out of the way to say, let me show you that Jesus is the one who is going to do this. As he sets at liberty this woman who is in the grips of a disease. This is the picture of who Jesus is. Our world is ensnared by sin, ensnared by Satan, ensnared by the effects of the curse. But Jesus demonstrates through his miracles that what he claimed to be, which is the person who could bring freedom, spiritual freedom, and then the restoration, not just spiritually, but Jesus is going to recover this entire world back to the way God wanted it to be. That he is the one who can do that. And the authors are going out of the way to demonstrate that. And he does it right here with this scene of Simon's mother-in-law being healed. But his day wasn't done. I want you to see this. He's been preaching all day in the synagogue. He's cast out this man who was, or this demon who was possessing this man. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. And then listen to this, verse 32. At evening... When the sun had set, they brought to him, literally they carried to him, all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Why did they have to wait till evening when the sun had set? Because it was the Sabbath. And they couldn't bear those loads. By the way, that was a wrong interpretation of the law. You can pull your donkey out of the ditch on a Sabbath... These people were so caught up into, in the false form of religion that they'd been taught by the Pharisees that when Jesus is down the street and they've got someone sick, they were waiting until the sunset to go get that person healed. I think Jesus in the next chapter is going to teach that wasn't the right application. You're allowed to do good on the Sabbath. Lord made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. These people are subservient to the, the laws of man, not to the law of God here. I remember traveling to Tel Aviv. I was in the middle seat for uh, the flight from Newark to Tel Aviv, which is a fairly lengthy flight. And I was sitting on one hand, a young Orthodox Jew on my left and a young Orthodox Jew on my right. And I was right in between them and they were observing a fast that day. It was one of the Jewish holidays. They were observing a fast. I had the awkward experience of being served my dinner while the two people on either side of me were fasting. 
I could virtually hear the salivating as I ate my meal. I apologize profusely, but if that's your view of the law, okay, I'm just going to chow down, right? And there was a rabbi in that back part of the plane that was part of their group. It was a large group. And they, were all, they all kept looking back to the rabbi because the rabbi had a very specific formula that he was trying, and here, here you can imagine the dilemma of this. When exactly is the sunset when you're flying in an airplane? Okay. And they were waiting for the official declaration. And eventually somewhere over France, okay, and I don't know how he knew it was sunset, but somewhere over France, the man got up and said something in Hebrew, and you would not believe this whole portion of the plane just exploded into activity. The overhead compartments opened up and there was food everywhere. The fast was broken. And these guys generously shared with me, even though I had consumed my meal in front of them. So I got to enjoy that. And I still remember that scene. Can you imagine the city of Capernaum? All of these people that have needs in their house, they have a loved one that's sick, someone that's going to be paralyzed for the rest of their lives, and right down the street is the man who can fix it. Can you imagine everyone peeking out their door? Yelling at their neighbors, it's not down yet. You get back in your house. <laughs> and then the moment when someone had the guts. What do you think it looked like in Capernaum that day? The, the first person who, who, had the, who had the litter and was walking down the street. And then an explosion of people out of every nook and cranny of that city. At evening when the sun had set, they carried to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. My friends, John was not lying when he said that if we were to write everything down, the books could not contain it. If we had a play-by-play -play of every single person that was healed on this single day in the life of Jesus, it would fill, it'd be larger than the book of Mark itself in one night. It wasn't one or two people walking around Galilee that had seen the miracles of Jesus. There were literally dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of people who had either directly experienced Jesus' healing or had seen it done. The rejection of Jesus was not a lack of, uh, of information. In fact, you could plot all of the miracles in all of human history. And I believe that probably all throughout human history, there are never as many miracles combined as the miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. The crescendo of God's work on planet earth was through the life of Jesus Christ so that there would be no doubt the light came to the people of Israel. The blindness was willful because Jesus powerfully demonstrated this. But I want to end with what I think is one of the most profound verses in all of the Gospels. It's personally one of my favorite verses in all of the Scripture. 
What does Jesus do at the end of this busy day? Remember, Jesus is fully human. This is the expression of a man who is doing the will of the Father. Look at this verse, Mark 1.35. Now in the morning, having risen long before daylight, after this exhausting day, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Why was Jesus praying? The end of this exhausting day of ministry, why was he praying? I just really want you to see this as plainly as possible. This is where we have to get rid of that Clark Kent Jesus. This isn't a man in clever human disguise, or this isn't God in clever human disguise. What we're seeing here is a picture of a man who was dependent on the Father. Can I just tell you the reason why Jesus was out praying after the end of this busy day is because he needed to be praying. He needed his relationship with the Father. More than rest, more than sleep, more than a meal, he needed his Father. And I just want to leave you with this question as we close tonight. If the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, needed the Father, how much more those of us in this room? If Jesus couldn't go through His day without the Father, without that relationship with God, how dare we think that we can go through our day without Him? And yet, if we were honest, we go through days that way, don't we? We go through days where we try to do what's on our plate without the power of God in our life. Jesus sets the perfect example of what it means to be a human and to live for God, which is to live a life of dependence on God the Father. If Jesus needed to get alone, spend time in prayer, and investing in his relationship with the Father, how much more all of us need to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.